We have a lot of uh, talented folks at our church in, in many different venues. Um, I was particularly challenged by Alethea in conversation this past week even. Um, I tend to just write off my own ability to uh, contribute to visual arts because I'm not a very good visual artist. Um, she, I think, describes this very well, the difference between being a, a, an artist and being a creator. Uh, and as image bearers of God, as she was saying, we are those called into co-create with God and to be co-cultivators of what God has created. Uh, and so we get to, whether or not we have uh, skill in that can be another matter altogether, uh, but even the process of creating along with what God has made uh, is part of what it is to, to image God. And so if you have even a desire to participate in that, I would just really encourage you to reach out um, to Alethea. If you have Bibles this morning, if you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, we are going to be in Colossians chapter 3. In those black hardcover Bibles, you'll find that on page 984. So you can go ahead and start making your way there. In in the Eastern Orthodox Church, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, on the Sunday before Lent begins, the church participates in something called the rite of forgiveness, rite as in R-I-T-E. And the right of forgiveness is this. Each member in the church takes turns standing face-to-face with every other member of that church and looks him or her in the eye and asks for forgiveness for how they've sinned against one another. So I want you to take a second and just briefly scan the room. Just look around the room who's with you in the room this morning. What would that be like if, you were to, if we were to do this together today, what would that be like if we were going to do the rite of forgiveness together in this room this morning? In some cases, you would have a lot to ask forgiveness about, uh, particularly among the people you know best, your family and your friends. For those that we know best, it's almost sure that we have done things that have hurt them or wounded them in some way. There are others in this room who perhaps you're at odds with, and even scanning the room briefly, like you intentionally just avoided eye contact with somebody else in this room, or you hope that they, as you scan the room, that they weren't here at all. So to participate in something like the rite of forgiveness would mean that you would have to come face to face with both the ways that you have wounded others and the ways that you have felt wounded by others. But then what about the people that you don't know? Uh, What about those in this room that you barely know or are complete strangers with? Or maybe even today, for for some of you, it's your first time here. What would you do today if we were to participate in this rite of forgiveness? Uh, A priest and his wife who were describing the rite of forgiveness uh, said that one of the members of their church thought long and hard about that question. Like, what should I do if I encounter someone that I don't really know or a a stranger? And as she thought long and hard about it, she decided this, that that each time that she would come face-to-face with someone she didn't know at all or someone she barely knew, she would look them in the eye and she would say, forgive me for how my sin pollutes the world you live in. Forgive me for how my sin pollutes the world that you live in. Sin is about both guilt and pollution. So sin is part of our nature as descendants of Adam. And sin is our rebellion against God. So there is a guilt and there is a condemnation in sin that we must be saved from. But there is also pollution in sin. Sin fractures God's good creation. And so we are born into a corrupted, polluted 
world, and then as sinners ourselves, we contribute in our own ways to that pollution. We participate in the, the corruption of what God made as good and originally created as perfect. And we pollute ourselves in sin, and we also pollute the people and the places around us. And we must be saved from that, too. Not just the guilt, but the pollution of sin. Different um, groups of Christians tend to emphasize one of these things to the exclusion of the other. So this is not exactly the way it plays out in all cases, but generally speaking, if you have a background in a more theologically conservative church, you probably have heard a lot more about the guilt of sin. And if you're more a background in a theologically progressive kind of church, you probably have heard a lot more about the pollution of sin. But it's really not a matter of either or, it's a matter of both and. Scripture speaks to both the guilt and the pollution of sin. And, like we're talking about in this series, these different pictures of salvation, these different aspects of salvation, Scripture speaks, uh, Scripture's definition of salvation is that salvation eradicates both. It eradicates both the guilt and the pollution. So a couple weeks ago, if you were here, uh, Pastor Steve Huber was here, and he taught about justification. Right? Justification is the part of salvation. That, that's what deals with the guilt of sin. That God, through the work of Jesus, vindicates us. There's no longer guilt and there's no longer condemnation for those of us who trust in the work of Christ. Today, we're looking at sanctification. Sanctification. And sanctification deals with the pollution of sin. The word sanctify comes from uh, two Latin words that mean to make holy. And so sanctification is about God making his people and God making his world holy again. Created in the image of God, even as Alethea just talked about a second ago, created for a perfect relationship with God, his image in each of us is fractured, is perverted, is corrupted by sin. And so salvation means nothing less than the restoration of God's image in us. It's a scholar named Anthony Hukuma. He, he defines sanctification like this. He says, It's the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation by which he delivers us from the pollution of sin, renews our entire nature according to the image of God, and enables us to live lives that are pleasing to him. And the first 17 verses in Paul's letter to the church, to the, to the Colossians, are incredibly helpful in, in helping us begin to understand this. And so we're going to spend some time looking at that passage today. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here there is not Greek or, and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and is in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious God, you have given us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. Guide us now, even, by your Holy Spirit, that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort, to reform us, to renew us according to your own image, to build us up into the perfect building of Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, Heavenly Father, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. So there's a lot in this text that pertains to sanctification. We'll consider it in three parts. The stages of sanctification, the sources of sanctification, and the significance of sanctification. Stages, the sources, and the significance. So first, the stages of sanctification. Most often, when we talk about sanctification, we're talking about a process that lasts our entire lives. But there's actually three stages to what the Bible describes when it talks about sanctification. First, there's an initial or definitive sanctification. And what that means is that through Jesus' finished work, when we repent of our sin, when we have faith in him, there's a fundamental change that happens in us. That we then become identified as saints, as the holy and cleansed people of God. We are cleansed from the stain, we're cleansed from the pollution of sin. And we're cleansed so much so that even though there is still sin in our lives, even though we still will war against and fight against sin in our lives, this is all spoken of in past tense in many places throughout Scripture, and we see some of them here in Colossians chapter 3. So verse 1, you have been raised with Christ already. It's already done. You've been raised with Christ. Verse 3, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verses 9 and 10, you have taken off your old self. You have put on your new self. And verse 12, you are God's chosen ones. You are already called holy and beloved, it says there. You are already known as the holy and beloved people of God. There is also not only this initial definitive sanctification, there's final sanctification. And what that means is that there will be a day when all of the sin in us, and not only all the sin in us, but all of the effects of sin in our world, all of the death and the decay and the corruption and the pollution around us will be completely eradicated. And where we will be completely restored to the perfection and holiness that we were intended to have when God created us in his image. When will that happen? This is really important. We'll come back to it in a second. When will that happen? Verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him 
in glory. So when Jesus comes back, that's when we experience final sanctification. We get to appear with him in our perfected state in glory, right? Completely sanctified. Now, in between the initial and the final, there's what we often call progressive sanctification. And most of the time, as I mentioned, when Christians talk about sanctification, they're talking about progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is the lifelong process of putting sin to death and becoming holy, becoming more and more like Jesus himself. As Paul will say elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's this process of transformation of one degree of glory to another. One degree of glory to another. And in case you have like an idyllic picture of that, of what one degree of glory to another looks like, that is a slow and tedious and often painful process. One of the primary metaphors that shows up in Scripture comes from Jesus himself in in the book of John, where he talks about pruning. He talks about cutting off the things that are dead in us so that that the, the purity, the holiness that he is working in us might have even more life and the dead might pass away. Pruning is painful. Pruning is painful. So this one degree of glory to another transformation is not like this happy experience all the time. If you've ever seen uh, the movie Shawshank Redemption, the image that came to my mind this week when I was thinking about this was Andy Dufresne, the main character in the story, his slow crawl to freedom through 500 yards of sewage. Anybody seen that movie? Slow crawl to freedom through 500 yards of sewage. Sanctification is the lifelong arm-over-arm crawl through the filth of sin. Through your own filth, and through everybody else's filth, it affects you too. And what, and what he says there is this great line. He says, and I wish I could use the actual word, but I'll have to change it a little bit to make it a little more appropriate. He says, Andy Dufresne crawled through a river of filth and he came out clean the other side. He crawled through a river of filth and he came out clean the other side. In verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore... As it's been famously said, whenever we see the word therefore, we should ask what the therefore is there for. Here it ties all these three stages of sanctification together. So because of what has been done, because of initial sanctification, you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, and because of what will be final sanctification, therefore participate in your progressive sanctification. Put sin to death and pursue Christlikeness. And Paul proceeds then to list a number of different ways in which sin pollutes our own lives and pollutes our world. And maybe you heard this as we read it. No less than five of these have to do with sexual purity. And that's not because uh, sexual sin is somehow categorically worse than other kinds of sin. But sexuality absolutely is an aspect of our lives where in every generation, in a thousand possible different ways, We have corrupted, we have perverted, we have polluted God's good design. And so sanctification is God calling us all to be renewed in his image, and especially in those ways, we are most prone to live out corruptions of it. And in our day, certainly, sexuality is one of the areas we are most prone to live out perversions and corruptions of God's good design. Now, we also here see the progressive nature of sanctification in verse 10. Where Paul says, we have put on the new self, that's already happened. Then he says, which is present tense, being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. 
So God is renewing and restoring his image in us one degree of glory to another. Though we still sin, though sin is still present in us, we no longer walk in sin. We no longer live in sin in a willful, persistent, unrepentant kind of way. Instead, we put those things to death and we pursue holiness. A lot of uh, the ladies in the room are, are studying the book of Hebrews together this spring. The best and most concise summary of all three of these stages comes in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. And the author of Hebrews there in Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering... He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. All three stages in one verse. So by his sacrifice on the cross, Jesus has perfected, past tense, that initial sanctification, for all time, which looks to the future, final sanctification, those who are being, present progressive sense, sanctified. Now if these are the stages of sanctification... Then second, let's consider the sources of sanctification. And skip down to verse 16. In verse 16, Paul refers to to three sources of our sanctification. How does the Spirit of God bring about holiness in us? How does the Spirit of God make us holy? First of all, through the word of Christ. Through the word of Christ. This is sanctification by Scripture. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer for his disciples, and he prays, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And then Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the word of Christ fleshes out what the holy life looks like and what the sinful life, by contrast, looks like that we're meant to put to death. And what that means is that all of the commands in Scripture, all of the moral imperatives, all of the do's and don'ts that you read, especially when you read the pages of the New Testament, that might feel laborious, that might feel unreasonable, that might feel backward, that might feel burdensome. I don't know how they hit you when you read all the commands in Scripture. But that means that these are so much more than like an operating manual for life. What those commands are in Scripture, that is a picture of life restored. They're a picture of life without the pollution of sin. And so when you, if you are, and I'm assuming you are, because I know each of us, I think, is at some point in time, tempted to write off something in Scripture that is insignificant, we perceive it as insignificant, or we maybe perceive it as relative, something that may be true for others but doesn't really apply to me. Remember that this is God purifying that which has been polluted. And this is a description of what it looks like for God to renew and to restore his image in us. Now next, Paul says in verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another. So there's sanctification by scripture. Here there's sanctification by community. Our relationships are a major source of sanctification. And the closer the relationship, like marriage, for example, the more it will be part of your sanctification, whether you want it to be or not. Uh, I often will tell couples in either premarital counseling or marriage counseling that in marriage, you are signing up to endure your spouse's sanctification. You are signing up willfully. We do this. There's lots of good things about marriage, too. One of the harder things about marriage, we are signing up to endure another person's sanctification. 
And that means we're not just like a first-hand observer of the ways that they are still corrupted and polluted by sin and that the image of God is marred in them. That means we are also the anvil on which God is forging Christ's likeness in them. That's what we do in relationships, and, and particularly marriage. Now, it's not an exclusive, uh, it's, that's not something that exclusively is about marriage. To different degrees, that's what we all sign up for when we pursue friendships with others. That's what we sign up for when we become part of a, a church community together. So expect that. And not only expect that, but, but learn to desire that. And learn to desire that in both directions. That you will experience God's sanctifying work through others in your own life and that you will also be part of God's sanctifying work in others by your presence in, in theirs. We teach and we admonish one another because relationships are one of, pri- one of God's primary sources of sanctification. The last source Paul mentions there are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we've got sanctification by scripture, sanctification by community. This is sanctification by singing. Sanctification by singing. Worship, including and especially the songs that we sing, that's an expression of our devotion to God. That's saying that God is worthy of our honor and praise. But worship doesn't only express something to God. Worship also forms something in us. Worship forms us in the story of God. And as it does that, it renews parts of our minds, parts of our hearts that have been polluted by sin. When we join our voices together in song, when we sing in worship, it fixes our attention and it fixes our affections, our emotions, our heart on Christ. And it is into the likeness of Christ that we are being conformed in sanctification. And that's why what we do every week when we sing together, that's why what our musicians do when they lead us in music each week is so important. It's not a concert. It's not meant to be something we sit and passively interact with. It's not, an interlude. It's not a musical interlude. It's not just bridging us from one portion of our service to another. It's singing our sanctification, and it's sanctification by singing. So in Colossians 3, we've got the stages and we've got the sources of sanctification. Third, let's talk about the significance of sanctification. And significance really is just a a more eloquent way of saying, so what? So what? What difference does sanctification make in our day-to-day lives and our day-to-day experience? Colossians 3 has a lot to say about that. For one, because of sanctification, we are called to an active role in salvation. You are called to play an active role in your own salvation. Now make sure you hear me really carefully on this. Sanctification is different from other aspects of salvation. And you'll hear this throughout this series as we're looking at these different pictures together. In almost all of the pictures and descriptions of salvation that we have in Scripture, we are passive, completely passive in the process. So we talked about regeneration a few weeks ago. In regeneration, we are passive as God rips out our hard hearts of stone and gives us hearts of flesh. In justification, we are completely passive as God vindicates us through the work of Christ. He makes this great exchange, Jesus on the cross. He gives us the righteousness of Christ and he takes our sin upon himself. But in sanctification, we are called to an active responsibility in that work of God. And this is all over Colossians chapter 3. We already saw verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. 
And Paul is saying here, you too wants to, you used to walk and, and live in these things like we said in our, in our scripture reading this morning. Such were some of you. But now put all of that away. And not only avoid the bad, as sometimes Christians are unfortunately known for, but also pursue the good. Verse 12, put on then all of these characteristics and actions that embody Christ-likeness. And it all crescendos in verse 17 where it says, whatever it is that you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of Jesus. So if your theological grid, if your theology ever leads you to passivity in putting sin to death, in pursuing holiness, that's inconsistent with Scripture. Sanctification means, as John Murray once said, that because God works, we work. Because God works, we work. Sanctification, like every other facet of salvation, is a work of God. It's a work that he will carry to completion, as Paul says in the book of Philippians. It's a work that is so much more about God's faithfulness than it is about our faithfulness, as he says in 1 Thessalonians. But it is a work of God that we labor in with diligence and persistence and vigor. As another scholar puts it, keep on cultivating the salvation that God has given you. Keep on cultivating the salvation that God has given you. So you and I cannot earn our salvation in any way, shape, or form, but we can and we must participate in our sanctification. Furthermore, because of sanctification, we can honestly confront our sin. So not only are we active in our, in our salvation, in this aspect of our salvation, we can honestly confront our sin. One of the most damaging beliefs that's held by Christians is that sinless perfection can be attained in this life. It cannot. It cannot. Sanctification is a process, right? It's this one degree of glory to another transformation until, verse 4, Christ, our life, appears and we appear with him in glory. So if you think you can arrive in this life, or if, even worse, you think you already have arrived in this life, you will minimize or you will ignore your sin. If you think you've arrived, you will minimize or you will ignore your sin. You will downplay sin. You'll refer to sin as mistakes. Uh, You'll refer to sin as shortcomings or weaknesses. And all the things that could be said about that, right, you'll, you'll probably, as you do that, come across as arrogant. You'll come across with a lot of pretense. You'll come across to other people in a certain way. But the really big deal about all of that is that it will derail a lifestyle of repentance. It will derail a lifestyle of repentance. Because when do we repent? We repent when we're aware of our sin. And we repent when we despise our sin. So if you don't think that you have any sin left in your life, you will stop repenting. And the second that you and I stop repenting of whatever sin is still in our lives, we call into question our very salvation. Because as Steve said earlier, a a Christian's life is a lifestyle of repentance. If we want a deeper, uh, more intimate relationship with Jesus, and I think most of us here this morning would say, yes, I want that. I want a deeper, more intimate relationship with Christ. Then we have to stop pretending that we're further along than we actually are. If we only talk about sin in the past tense, if we only talk about things that we used to struggle with once upon a time, and now we don't struggle with those things anymore, you will sound to others, you will sound mature, you will sound pious, but you are already on the road to unrepentance. You're already on that road. And I, 
I know this not like in theory. I know this because this is true of me. Personally, there are really dark parts of my heart that continue to find certain sins appealing. There's a wicked part of me that to this day wants to indulge pride, wants to indulge lust, wants to indulge laziness, or wants to indulge anger, and finds opportunities to do those things. From experience, I know better. I talk to other people on a regular, almost daily basis about why those things don't satisfy. I believe they don't satisfy. But that sin is still present in my life. And to pretend otherwise is not Christian maturity, it's Christian suicide. It's Christian suicide, not Christian maturity. This is one of the main reasons that for me, Lent has become increasingly meaningful in my own rhythms and practice of worship. I'm more aware of my sin today than I, than I think I've ever been in my life. And, and that's hopefully not because I've become more sinful. I don't think that's the case. I hope it's not the case. Um, I think, by God's grace, he's brought a lot of growth in my life in recent years. But part of that growth is him exposing how deep the roots of my sin go. And as he exposes that, that means there's that much more in front of me now to repent of. But the beauty of that, as that's exposed, as there's more to then repent of, I have that much more opportunity to trust in the sanctifying work of Christ, that he will carry the good work that he has begun to completion. So because sanctification is progressive, you and I can honestly name and confront our sin. We can rejoice in the real transformation that God has brought, and at the very same time, we need not pretend that we're further along than we actually are. Okay, one last thing that I'll mention about the significance of sanctification Because of sanctification, we care not only about our own holiness, we also care about the holiness of God's world. There are huge social dimensions to this salvation picture of sanctification. For one thing, part of our own holiness is to pursue holy conduct in our relationships with others. If you heard all of the one another's and each other's that show up in this text, that's why they're there. Because forgiveness and reconciliation and loving our neighbor as ourselves, that has everything to do with our pursuit of holiness and having the image of God renewed in us. But sanctification is also about God's renewal of all of his creation, his restoration of creation back to its original unpolluted holiness. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says that creation itself is in bondage to corruption. The creation itself is groaning in the pains of childbirth. It's suffering under the weight of sin and all of sin's pollution. And it says that creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And what that means is that God is renewing his creation through his renewed people. God is renewing his creation through his renewed people. As he renews his image in us, he uses us then to renew all that he has made. He is sanctifying his world even as he sanctifies us. And so as you think about how this salvation picture of sanctification might resonate with the real people that you know and work with and live near, don't miss the social dimension, right? Generally speaking, our culture has an increasingly negative view of the church. It used to be kind of more of an apathy. It seems like in recent years, from some studies, that's turning a little bit more toward uh, hostility, that the church is actually not just a neutral kind of societal group. It's actually got negative effects on society. But what is the church? 
the church is the people through whom God is renewing the world. The church is the people through whom God is renewing the world. And this is one of the main reasons why I became a pastor. Because 10 years ago, talking to missionaries who were going overseas to plant churches in other parts of the world, I found myself asking the question, why? Why are you going to these places to plant churches? There are all these kinds of needs that exist out there in the world. The need for clean water, the need for economic development, there's combating human trafficking, all kinds of social justice kinds of issues that, that, that need to be addressed in the world. So why the church? In part, it's because of this. Because the church is not just preaching and programs, as important as those things are. The church is renewed men and women through whom creation itself is being renewed. It's God sanctifying his creation. So if you care about clean water and you care about fighting human trafficking, you care about economic development, if you care about social justice, then what you really want is the church. What you really want is the church. Another way I believe sanctification will resonate in this cultural moment. Sanctification means that you and I have something to seek forgiveness for from every single person that we encounter. And our need for God's sanctifying work presupposes that we are polluted by sin and that we then in turn pollute this world through our sin. And so just as in that rite of forgiveness that I described at the beginning, we can with all sincerity say to the people that we come across, forgive me for how my sin pollutes the world you live in. Forgive me for how my sin pollutes the world you live in. How different would it feel to someone that you are just getting to know? Someone who lives near you on your street, someone who you work with. If you started talking about your faith in Jesus from that vantage point, rather than arguing with them about the origins of the universe or about ethics and morality, I mean, there, there is absolutely a need to talk about the origin of things, and there's a need to talk about ethics and morality, but rarely do those discussions disarm people. Rarely. Rarely do those discussions provide deeper relationship and, de- and opportunities for deeper discussion. More often, they just erect larger walls between people. But when you apologize to someone, that is a humble, endearing kind of posture you are taking with them. Even if you're apologizing for an indirect offense, like how your sin pollutes the world. That itself requires humility that's only possible through God's sanctifying work. So Because God isn't finished with you yet, because he's not finished renewing his world, we are free to be honest about our sin, to see it and to own it and to repent of it. The impression that, that many in our society have of Christians and Christianity is that we are those who are filled with pretense. Right? We, we think we're better than everybody else. We think that we've arrived and that that everybody else needs to catch up. But progressive sanctification says nothing could be further from the truth. We have not arrived at all. And the more that we speak honestly about that, the more our lives will become accessible and the more our lives will become compelling to other people. And that's even more the case when you combine your honesty about where you really are with your active responsibility to fight against the pollution that still exists in the world. And so the call of sanctification is be honest about where you are and fight against the pollution that still exists in the world and pursue holiness. So because of the saving, sanctifying work of God, may we be those people who are thoroughly honest about the sin in our lives and the sin in this world 
and thoroughly unsatisfied to let it remain that way. Through Christ, God not only deals with the guilt of sin, he deals with sin's pollution, renewing his image in us, renewing his entire creation. So put to death what is earthly within you and put on holiness and Christ-likeness. And as you pursue that, may you trust the God who will bring to completion the good work that he's begun. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we confess that we have polluted your good world and that we feel the weight of the pollution of sin in our own lives, the, the sin of others against us, the sin just of, uh, that has fractured all of your creation. We, we are those immersed in filth when left to ourselves. And we don't just want to be declared free from sin and vindicated from it in the legal sense. We want to be free from the stain and the pollution of sin too. We want to be cleansed. We want to be completely new. We want sin and all of its effects to be eradicated. And Jesus, that is exactly what you came to die for. You came to eradicate the pollution of sin. And as we get to come to this table this morning, I pray that we would see that there has been a definitive action done on our behalf, that we are holy and clean as your people. You have called us that. And that you will one day come again when you celebrate this feast with us in your kingdom, that we will be fully and completely holy and sanctified, free from all the pollution of sin. And may those two things fuel our pursuit of holiness in this life. May you empower us to put sin to death and to put on the new self, to put on holiness. Whatever comes to our mind this morning as we consider coming to this table, whatever sin that remains in us, would we see in this table that you have paid the cost of it? And may that be an opportunity for us to be renewed in your grace to continue our fight against it. So strengthen us as we come this morning. We pray this all in your name. Amen.